0: Uh, Well, we're uh, doing something a a little bit different uh, today. Uh, I decided that uh, everyone likes a a good story, uh, and so today would be a good day to tell the story of the Reformation, uh, because believe it or not, today is Reformation Sunday, Uh, Today is Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday uh, in October, because uh, on October 31, which is uh, Thursday uh, this week, 502 years ago, uh, something really important happened. Uh, Do you know what it was? Uh, Do you know what it was that happened on October 31, 502 years ago? Well, I won't get you to speak it out because you probably it'll be uh, it'll be too hard for you to speak it out, but that's what we're talking about uh today. Scholars basically agree that even though uh the the reformation, the Protestant reformation was pretty complex and and widespread all, all across Europe or the Roman Empire, uh that uh they there's general agreement that if you had to identify the start or or the thing that sparked the whole thing off, uh The moment that sparked off the Reformation was when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the um, walls of the castle church in Wittenberg, the town in which he lived. In Germany, and that was on October 31, 1517, and, and people attribute that tiny spark uh, to lighting up the whole conflagration uh, of the the wildfire, if you like, of the Protestant Reformation uh, that has changed the world forever. An incredibly uh, mighty uh, historical movement. Um, after the fact, uh, Martin Luther said, "I never thought such a storm would rise out of Rome from a simple scrap." Of paper, uh, he was referring to the 95 theses that he posted on these uh, this uh, church wall the, of the Castle Church. So, so today I want to talk to you uh, about the Reformation and a little bit about uh, Martin Luther's role in in the Reformation. Uh, but before I do that, I want to. Uh, share a little bit of an illustration and look at the passages that we looked at as a kind of a way of interpreting what was happening in the Reformation or, or as a way of um, how Martin Luther saw what he was doing and, and what was happening uh, in the Reformation. So illustration, a little bit of Bible, and then a little bit of the story uh, of the Reformation. So, so the illustration comes from uh, something actually Barb shared last week, which was uh, about this game that we played at youth group, uh, Two Friday days ago, if you were here last week you'll remember, um, we sat in a circle, there were uh, about 10 of us or 11 of us and uh, we all got a piece of paper and a pen and we wrote, we were just to write a statement at the top of the um, page. Uh, So I wrote um, Betty likes butter uh, on the top of mine and then we would have pass it to the person next to us and then they were to draw a picture of, of whatever it was that they read and then they were to fold over to hide the, um, the statement so that only the picture was showing and pass it to the next person and that person was to look at the picture and then write a sentence or a statement based on what they saw, fold over the picture Pass it to the next person, so they had the same. You get the drift. So, so it was like it was a version of Chinese whispers. You know that game. I don't know if you've ever played it. And we and we did it eight times. Uh, and then at the end, we got to um, get the piece of paper back to see. How our message went uh, in, in translation, and of course, uh, the message was almost completely lost. Uh, there was so it was maybe like a tiny bit of semblance of, of the original message, um, but um, there was really only for some it was completely lost. Others it was at best like ten percent of the original message. And and really, the point of the two passages that we uh, read just before uh, was this: Don't do that with the gospel. Don't do that with the gospel. Don't let it get lost in translation. Don't let it get diluted or distorted. Uh, Because according to Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so if you dilute the gospel, the, the message, the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're diluting and distorting the power of, the very power of God for salvation from sin and judgment and hell. And so it's really important that you don't dilute or distort the gospel. And if you looked at the readings that we had today, both of them were were saying, warning the people. Jude was warning and the Apostle Paul was warning the Ephesian elders. Be on guard, watch out. So if you look at verse 3 of Jude, he writes, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Contend for the faith. Now the Greek word for contend in this is the word the the root is agonizomai from which we get the word agonize Agonitimise. So it's it's a struggling, agonize for the faith, contend for it, fight for it. Uh, it's actually referring to um the Agones uh, at the time, which were Olympians, they fought in the Olympic Games, and they were fighters. You you think like UFC type, you know, ultimate fighting, like that's Olympic Games, like but but to the death kind of thing. And he's saying fight not for yourselves, not at the Olympics, but fight, agonize for the gospel, the faith, once for all delivered. And, of course, the implication is that it's going to be under attack. It's, it's going to be undermined. It's going to be distorted and diluted. And that's why you need to contend for it. Uh, and, and you know what? Martin Luther was a fighter. Um, to a fault, he was a fighter. Uh, there, there's some unpleasant things about Martin Luther. He overstepped the mark in things that he said and, and things that he did. But. But the consensus generally is that it was that type of person, a fighter and a brawler, that was necessary to bring about the Reformation, uh, to bring about the necessary changes. Uh, And so in in Jude, uh, this is what he says. He's got this great um, quote about how the Reformation came about. He says, um, While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, which, by the way, I brought a token of um, Luther beer, uh, from Wittenberg. Uh, so I'm sorry, it's an empty bottle. Uh, but um, this is a, a Luther beer. There were six varieties. This is the dark beer. I brought it back. I was a souvenir. It's on the mantelpiece, straight to the pool room. Uh, and uh, he says, "'While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, "'the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy "'that never a prince or emperor "'inflicted such damage upon it. "'I did nothing. "'The word did it all.'" I get the picture of King Josiah, remember, in the Old Testament where there was just so much corruption and, and the, church, the, the, the kingdom had lost its way. And then they're like searching through the temple and there's like dust and cobwebs and, and, uh, and then they find the word of God. And and it's been buried, it's been lost, and they read it, and it's like, whoa, we have so lost our way, and it bring about, brought about this incredible reformation uh, in Israel. Do you know the story? You know the story of King Josiah. It's it's like what this is what was happening here with with Martin Luther. Through the word of God came about the reformation, uh, and. Uh, And and I want to give you some background before we get to to Martin Luther. Uh, So that's a a bit of an illustration about things getting lost in translation and then a bit of uh, scripture about how we need to contend for the gospel because it can get diluted or or distorted. Uh, And now setting up uh, for Martin Luther Uh, because uh, there's an important bit of uh, background uh, that was happening uh, around 1500, the the, the turn of that century, uh, where the scholars... um, had a cry. There was this growing cry, and the cry was "ad fontes," which is Latin for "back to the sources." So "fontes" is like "font," fountain, and if you think about a stream, a stream is always purest at its at its source, right, from the well, from from the from the spring. And, and there was this cry, "ad fontes," back to the sources, because for hundreds of years, the way that they did scholarship. Um, and, and there was a lot of scholarship happening. Um, is that instead of dealing with the, per, the original idea, a person who had an idea, the way they did scholarship is that they dealt with what this person said about that idea and what this person said about that idea and the arguments that they had about that person's idea. So they were they weren't dealing with the original source. They were de- it was called scholasticism. Uh, and and these sort of intricate debates and and, and it just muddied the waters and so there was this cry ad fontes let's get back to the sources and this was applying to the Roman Empire so it wasn't just a church thing Um, it was social it was political they wanted to get back to Plato and and Virgil Uh, if you've heard of the Ramsey Centre you know the the Centre for the Study of Western Civilization. it's a similar idea ad fontes we need to get back to the foundations of Roman and, and Greek society but the way that this translated into the church is what would ad fontes going back to the sources mean for the church, do you think? Back to the Bible, back to the New Testament. And so th- this was the kind of what was happening and uh, and, and there was a, a, a call in the church to go back to the source, go back to the New Testament, the foundation of the church because it had been buried and, and lost. Um. So there was this guy, Erasmus, uh, stepping onto the scene. There's a photo of him, Erasmus of Rotterdam, a good Dutch theologian, and he, um, he did something revolutionary uh, that, that was a kind of the prelude to the uh, Reformation. He compiled a Greek translation of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't sound very uh, revolutionary, but let me explain uh, why it was. You see, for uh, over a 1,000 years... Uh, The Bible that everyone relied upon was the Latin translation, the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. And um, just like I described the game at the start, there there were some things that were lost in translation. And not only that, but you think how much language changes over 30 years or 500 years, read the King James Version... Well, this was a translation that was almost 1,200 years old that they were relying on, and there had been some mistakes that, and things that were lost in translation. So, not only that, but of course, over 1,200 years, there's going to be a whole. There were there were entire traditions and theologies and practices and beliefs that were built on this Latin version that weren't actually there in the original Greek. They'd accumulated these things based on this translation. And so for the first time now in a thousand years, people like Martin Luther are reading the Latin translation of the New Testament, the the Vulgate, and and now, thanks to Erasmus, they've got this Greek, the original, remember the New Testament was written in Greek, and they've got the original Greek, and they're reading stuff uh, in the the Latin version and going like, hang on a minute, the Latin version says this, but if I I look at the Greek, it, it doesn't actually say that. And for thousands of years, we've been we've been kind of doing this, but I just can't see, I just can't see it there in in the original version, and and so you can see how that's going to create uh, tension, and that's going to start to create um, uh, some uh, challenge to the establishment. Uh, and 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 the other thing to say as a little sidetrack is. Um, Nobody spoke Latin. I mean, the, the, even some of the clergy couldn't speak Latin, right? So you've got this whole whole civilization built on the Latin version and nobody actually knows what it says. All they know is what the clergy are telling them it, it says because it's in Latin. So they're completely in the dark and that could be one of the reasons why they refer to it as the Dark Ages. There, there's more to it than that. But people are in the dark. They've got. They just have to take their word for it. But but now there's this, there's this Greek translation, and and that's where Martin Luther steps in. All right, He's, Martin Luther was a was a um, a monk, a Catholic monk. Um, he was well educated, and he was a lecturer uh, in New Testament or the Bible. He was he was a lecturer in the Bible, and he had this this Greek translation that, of the New Testament that uh, Erasmus had provided, and so he'd been steeped uh, in uh, the the Greek New Testament, and um, and so. There was something happening around 1516. There was, there was a bit of a, um, almost, it's almost like a, a special occasion that was happening in the neighbouring town uh, in Wittenberg. And, and what it was was that Prince Frederick the Wise, he was the Prince of, of Saxony, that region, he was opening up his castle for people to come and view his holy relics Uh, He had like I think he had thousands of relics for people to come uh, and view. So so here's what he had in his stash. He he had um, a cut of fabric from the swaddling cloth of baby Jesus. Thirteen pieces of of Jesus crib, the manger. He had he had pieces of myrrh that the wise men had had come. Uh, He had a morsel of bread from the last supper. And and one of the best, he had a thorn from the crown that Jesus wore on his head. All right. So 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 there's all these relics, and and he's opening up his castle for people in the in the to come and view these holy uh, relics, and he had all kinds of them. Um, but the, but the, but that was one thing. Even more exciting was the fact that the Pope had issued these indulgences for people to buy. Um, who were there and they were out in the streets. Um, there was actually this famous, um, this jingle that the guy Tetzel came, um, came up with, like as a marketing thing, that the phrase was, um, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs... Someone's repeating, someone, someone's, here, someone's saying it with me. Uh, when, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So I almost imagine, this is like a complete fabrication, but, but I almost imagine like this nice family day out where you go to the castle. It's very exciting. You're going into the prince's castle. You get to see all like a thorn from Jesus' crown and all of this cool stuff. And then you, know, you go through the souvenir thing at the end of the, the thing and, sell, and you can buy an indulgence. Um, It's all a lot of family-friendly fun. Now, that's a bit of a caricature, um, but but that's what what was happening. Um, Now, for those of you who don't know what an indulgence was, um, it it promised the buyer that their time in purgatory um, would be reduced by up to 1,902,202 years and 270 days. Right? Right? So you buy one of these, and by the way, the printing press, remember, is only a recent invention. And so now you've got the, this paper, your signed certificate, stamped. I'm not sure if it was by the Pope or by the by the bishop. Uh, and and you get you buy it, and you get your time off, some time off purgatory, up to almost two million years off purgatory, right? So that's that's like a good deal. Uh, and um, and and if you don't know what purgatory is, purgatory is the the belief to be the place that you go um, to to kind of purge to burn off the rest of your sins, right? So you can't go straight to heaven because you've still got sin, so you go into purgatory um, to have your sins purged or cleansed. And it's not nice. It's, it's not hell. It's like hell, 50%, 50 degree, like half the amount of degrees um, to... Um, To work it off. You have to work it off. You have to work off your sin before you can go uh, into heaven. So if you've got a lot of sin, you've got a lot of work to do and a lot of time to spend there. If you've only got a little bit of sin, you've only got a little bit of time to spend there and a little bit of work uh, to do. But with an indulgence, you could actually reduce your sentence in purgatory. So there was something going on in the background of, of this, and the, and and what was happening is that the Pope had a problem. He was trying to finish off a building project, uh, and um, and it was um, St Peter's Basilica in Rome that he was trying, and he was had run out of money. So what better way to raise money for for um, the the St Peter's Basilica than to sell indulgences and even to to offer like a better a better deal? So so. Th- at this stage there were even better indulgences because normally you could only um, get an indulgence, get for yourself to buy your own time off purgatory. But these indulgences, you could do it for your uncle or your aunt or your cousins who are su- suffering right now in purgatory. You can do it not just for yourself but for your relatives. And they really hand this up, you know, like how could you not, when you things suffering in purgatory, how could you not buy one of these and get your family out of purgatory or, or whatever it was. And then there was this um, indulgence called a plenary indulgence And what this meant was that when you bought one, all of your sins would have been wiped away up to that point in your life. It was like saying it was being brought back to the state you were in when you were baptized. Because the idea is that when you're baptized, you're perfectly sinless, but then like a second after, you're already accumulating sin. And they just accumulate, and you're going to have to pay all that off in purgatory. But these plenary indulgences meant when you bought one, you would have all of your past sins, um, Cancelled, and you'd only have to pay in purgatory for your sins between that point and your time in, um, uh, when you died, right? Are you tracking, tracking with me on this? So, so for the average Joe, this was an absolute bargain, right? But Luther's in the next town, and he's like, this is an absolute crock. I'm reading the New Testament, I'm reading the Greek, I've been immersed in it, and we're doing all this stuff, and none of it is in the book. Right? And so they've been there for a year in the neighboring town and getting a lot of fanfare and interest. And he's like, I've had enough. This is enough. Uh, this is enough. So on October 31, which we're marking this Thursday, 1517, he, he he went back to his office and he wrote down these 95 theses, these 95 arguments, and he posted them to the uh, door of the, the castle church in his town. So on the left there is the is the castle church, and you can sort of see the, the door there uh, in the bottom. And then on the right, I'm standing in front of the door. Obviously not the original door. There was a fire. It was a wooden door. It burnt down. Now it's been replaced with with steel and and embedded in those are the 95 theses that he posted. Um, And there were 95 arguments. It was kind of like a challenge um, and an invitation to a debate. And he's he's arguing against the indulgences and other corrupt um, practices. Um, Now, it was never his intention, but this This was the spark that kind of lit the flame, right? So now it became this massive showdown between Martin Luther and the Pope. They got onto the Pope's desk... And, and now we've got a problem. And because of the printing press, it was translated into German, which is the common language. He wrote them in Latin. So it was meant to be, it was intended just to be an academic debate, but it was translated into German and spread everywhere. So people And people are already upset with the corruption uh, and, and with the way things are going, and now they have a hero. Now they have a voice. It was not his intention, but uh, this is what happened. And so... Uh, that the establishment's not happy. The po- you have to kind of bring him back into line, right? So a year later, um, there was a debate. And the, the, the Roman Catholic Church appointed their theological heavy, heavyweight, their, their best heavy hitter in terms of theological debate. It was a guy called uh, Johannes Eck. And, uh, and, and they, they had a showdown, they had a debate, uh, called the Le- it was in Leipzig, it's called the Leipzig debate. So up is a depiction, you've got Luther on the left with his Bible open, and then you've got Johannes Eck uh, on the right in the black there, and they're having this uh, debate about these, these um, theses and, and, and Luther's uh, teaching. Now Eck, um, Eck is smart, he knows that if he tries to debate um, what the Bible says with Luther, it's not going to go so well because he doesn't got much of a leg to stand on in terms of the Greek. So he doesn't debate Luther on any good debater, right? You take it onto the ground where you're stronger and off the ground where your opponent is strong. So, so what he, the way that he frames it is that he accuses uh, Luther of promoting the same ideas as this guy called Jan Hus from, uh, from 100 years ago, right? He was condemned um, as, as a heretic. And um, I've got a, I've got a uh, video Uh, that I, uh, of myself, um, uh, to tell you a little bit about Jan Jan Hus.
1: So right behind me is uh, the rock, a memorial for where Jan Hus was burned. I'm in Constance uh, today in Germany, and I want to tell you about Jan Hus. Uh, He was 100 years before Luther, 1418, And he said things uh, that Luther would say a hundred years later, things against the corruption of the church, the sale of uh, indulgences, and uh, the need to have the Bible in the vernacular so that people could understand it. Uh, And this was not popular. And he was uh, burned at the stake uh, because of his beliefs outside the city walls. Why was the... Reformation successful under Luther who said the same things a hundred years later and not under Jan Hus who was saying exactly the same things. Well a few reasons. Uh, The printing press wasn't invented by the time of Jan Hus but it was by the time of Luther and so the idea could spread. The idea uh, could go uh, uh, all over the place under Luther. Also Luther had a prince who was able to protect him, provided him with protection, whereas Jan Hus had no powerful prince to look after him. Uh, One other consideration could be the fact that Luther spoke German, a much more popular language, more widely understood, whereas Jan Hus spoke Czech and so his message wasn't able to spread as far. So here we are at a memorial for the burning of Jan Hus. He was uh, Huss actually means goose and so when he died he said I'm the goose who's being cooked but in a hundred years from now will come a swan and Luther came around a hundred years later and he said I am that swan he took on that prophetic uh, if you like um, uh, statement from Huss uh, and used it for himself and his own message
0: Uh, I was I was in I was in Germany and Switzerland. I did a Reformation tour about two years ago, so that was taken uh, on site. I've been hanging out to be able to actually show it to someone. No, uh, that's I built the whole thing around just just that. No, um, so uh, so he's in this debate, and um, and Johannes Eck is like you're saying the same thing as Huss, and Huss was condemned. As a, as a heretic. And by the way, the reason they burned them rather than other methods was because, of course, hell is fire and, and, and judgment. And so you burn them to show that, that that's just preparation for the fires of, of hell. And it's like a condemnation, anathematizing of who they are and what they stood for. And, and Eck is saying, you're saying the same thing as Haas. And, um, and Luther, initially, he's like, no, 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 I'm not Huss. I've got nothing to do with Huss. But then, during, at Leipzig, there was a, there was a, uh, a lunch break, if you like. Uh, and, uh, during the lunch break, uh, he, he was like, man, I gotta check out who this guy Huss is. I don't know him very well. So he goes to the library, he does some research, he, just during the lunch, he looks up Huss, and he's like, wow. We really are saying the same things. Now, one of the things you need to know about Luther is he had a knack for drama, um, and which was part of his success, right? So before lunch, he's like, nah, nothing to do with us. Comes back after the lunch break, and he's he changes his tune. He changes his mind. And he says this, Among the articles of Jan Hus, I find many which are plainly Christian and evangelical, which the universal church cannot condemn. Now, at this moment, there's like a... <gasps> Because he's just aligned himself with a condemned heretic, and then and then so X, X says to him, "Are you the only one who knows anything? Except for you, is the is the entire church in error? In other words, you're saying you're right, and the entire establishment of the church is is wrong on this point." And this is what Luther said uh, in in reply. Uh, I haven't got the words up on the screen, but he says, "I." I am a Christian theologian and I am bound not only to assert but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I believe freely and will be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university or pope. So he says this uh, in the debate, and essentially he's, he's saying, Scripture is my, my authority, not uh, nothing else. A council, a university, or a pope, it's the scriptures that's my authority, and I'll bow to nothing but that. Now, this gets back to the pope. And of course, it's, he's, he's infuriated. Uh, he hasn't sort of um, bowed the knee. He hasn't come into line. And so um, fast forward two years later, and he's given another chance to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Uh, I, I, I was wrong. Um, and, and this was called the Diet of Worms, except this time... Uh, it was so. So here's a depiction, a famous depiction uh, of of the Diabolians. But this time it wouldn't be a debate. This time it's just him saying, "Yeah, I'm sorry. I take back my word." And this time it wouldn't be um, standing before a, a kind of a heavyweight theologian. This time he's standing before Emperor Charles V, right? So up there on the screen to the left depicted is Emperor Charles V and Luther standing in front of him. And the process was really simple. They got all of Luther's writings uh, and, and they put them there. And you can see that on the right there, you probably can't see it's not big enough, but, but on the very right, uh, they've got his books and pamphlets there. Uh, some of them are on the floor. And, um, and the, this, the question was simple. Do you defend them all or do you reject them, right? Do you defend these books that you've written uh, that, that are contradicting the church and the Pope or do you reject them? And then to, it, there was a bit of back and forth, but to cut a long story short, he, he spoke these now famous words, his most famous words. He said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I, I haven't got it in there. These famous words, here I stand, so help me God. Amen. Is that ringing any bells for anyone, those, those words? Yeah, yeah, it's familiar to to some of you. These were now his most famous words Um, because they they embody and they capture the core cry of the Reformation, which was this, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, it means scripture alone. In other words, um, our ultimate authority, the high court, uh, for, for me as a Christian, is the word of God and nothing else. So if anything's coming in to, contra, contra, to contradict that, I choose scripture. Scripture alone is our authority. Uh, and that's, that was the core uh, cry of the Reformation. There were others. There's actually five solas, um, but, but the, the foundational one was, was sola scriptura, scripture alone. So let me try to wrap this up. Uh, for us today. There's so much more I could tell you, I, I look forward to. It. Oh, and if you want to know more, um, right now media, if you go into the St. Philip's one, go down to the bottom, there's some stuff on Luther, really high quality stuff. If you want to learn more, these 15 minute videos focused on Luther, um, right now media, St. Philip's Anglican Church, down the bottom, Luther, uh, check it out. Um, as well as that, I've, I've got lots of books on the Reformation. These are the absolute best. They're absolute page turners. Here I Stand is the classic uh, biography of Martin Luther. Fantastic stuff if you like biographies. Um, Christianity's Dangerous Idea, so good. Alistair McGrath, Everything He Writes is Pure Gold, especially this one, Christianity's Most Dangerous Idea. Um, so, so so I commend that to you right now, media. Have a look at these books. I don't know if I'm willing to lend them, but come and talk to me anyway. See, see if I can do some kind of trade. No. Um, so, so, so let's wrap this up. Do, do you know what the, um, the word of the year, the Oxford Dictionary word of the year was in 2016? Does anyone know what the Oxford Dictionary word of the year was in 2016? Uh, this is it here. Word of the year, post-truth. Uh, that was the word of the year in 2016. Uh, we're living in a post-truth uh, world. They, they saw a 2,000% um, kind of rise from 2015 to 2016, so they made it um, the word of the year, uh, that the world we're living in is a post-truth world. In other words, we no longer make decisions based on truth, on objective facts, we make them based on experience or, or on our feelings. So, so no longer are we worried so much about the Pope and, and his challenge to the authority of Scripture, uh, the, the main contender for that now is, is experience uh, or emotion. If it feels good, it must be true. Do it. If it feels good, uh, emotion, experience, that's the, new, that's the new authority that is uh, the challenge. And, and how can that be true? The Bible, it's not true to my experience. It doesn't make me feel good. That's part of what it means to live in a post truth society and so of course it's the same as what it was in the first century in the new testament it's the same as what it was in the 16th century with luther we still need to contend to agonize for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints which has been which is in the new testament in the scriptures Uh, and and that is our authority uh, and so I, I want to leave us with a, que- a question and a, a challenge. Um, is it possible that we have been, uh, in, even in the church, have been influenced by a post-truth uh, worldview? Uh, is it possible that for, even for us, when we read the Bible, we, without knowing it, because it's the water that we're swimming in, we read it with a set of post-truth glasses on uh, that leave us a little bit colorblind. Uh, and and kind of distort uh, what it is that, that we see, um, so that so that when we read um, bits in the scripture, for example, about the love of God, uh, it makes us we, we see that in all the colours of the rainbow, uh, because there's a resonance, uh, and and it makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the on the inside, and and that's good. God, the love of God is beautiful. And we should see it in all of the colours of the rainbow. The love of Christ is, is, is a beautiful thing and, and, and we can see that clearly. But then when it, maybe it comes to the truth of God in the scriptures or things that don't have as much resonance in our culture, we only see those things in grayscale. And they don't make us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. They leave us a little bit cold. Or maybe we just don't notice them because of our lenses and, and we skip over those Those bits, even without knowing, even even the best of us, with the best intentions, uh, because of this water that we're swimming in, and please don't misunderstand me. I don't want us to turn down the colours on on the love of God. I I want to see that in all the colours of the rainbow. What I'm saying is, is that that we need to turn up the colors on, on all of the counsel of God in, in the Acts 20. Um, Paul says, I did not refrain from teaching you the whole counsel of God. It's Acts 20, about verse 18 or whatever. The whole counsel of God. But when we've got these let post truth lenses on, we struggle to see some of those bits, uh, in the scriptures. And so, I can think of no better way of finishing a sermon that's trying to, uh, uh, lift up the, the truth of God, the, the gospel of God, and, and the lesson of the Reformation uh, with Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. So here's where I will leave us with Paul's words. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I know that after I have gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some, even from your own group, will come, distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore, be alert. And now, I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst, amongst all the saints.
1: Amen.